This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is April 6th, 2023. I'm Scott Delonaboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, we have more bills in the BC legislature. We're maybe getting more homes, although it turns out we haven't gotten many yet. Uh, and much, much more, as always. First, as always, please support the show at patreon.com slash politicost. Let's start with the BC legislature and what is happening there. We have four new bills with three new press releases in the legislature. Other acts are moving along, but you can subscribe to BC Today if you want all of that. The first act's pretty interesting. These are actually pretty substantive acts overall. Uh, The Motor Vehicle Act is being amended. It's being endorsed uh, by Hub Cycling, these changes. They're going to do four major things. They are going to require that drivers, quote, take proper precautions when pedestrians and cyclists are using the roadway. So no more (laughs) reckless driving, Scott. Seems like one of those things that you shouldn't have to be amending the law in 2023 to add. Yeah, it's described as a vulnerable road user framework. So I think this is just about making sure the onus is clearly on the drivers when collisions happen And these things are making their way through ICBC and through the courts if they end up there that, you know, pedestrians and cyclists aren't getting blamed for getting hit by very heavy chunks of metal. Uh, More prominently, BC is going to implement the one meter safe passing distance and three meter following distance for cars to give space to cyclists and e-bikes and pedestrians who are on the roadway. That's I've seen that used elsewhere. Uh, It's one of those things that's tough to enforce, but it does, again, put an onus on drivers to give space on the roads to the other people who are allowed to be on the roads. Uh, There are going to be speed limiters required for heavy-duty commercial vehicles. This is going to, in theory, help decrease greenhouse gas emissions and reduce speed-related crashes. And I don't know, maybe make the Coca Hall a little less scary sometimes when you have like three lanes and there's a truck in each lane as they each try to pass each other. And you're just like, I'm going to let you finish that before I go past you all because my car can. But fun times on the highways in this province. Uh, and finally, they're going to give themselves more powers to implement pilot projects uh, for new and emerging technologies. I guess they just want to play around with more e-bikes and be a little less restricted in how they, um, you know, try those things out. So overall, pretty positive changes. Just the key criticism here being the biggest thing you can do to protect cyclists on roadways is design them better. But in the meantime, yeah, make drivers behave better. The speed limiters, the thing I can actually see probably being the most controversial if this does get any blowback. On that, I can't imagine the drivers of uh, commercial vehicles are necessarily going to be happy about that. Can't say I'm tuned into the debates on the commercial vehicle side. Uh, I'm sure there's definitely people who oppose it, but I can definitely see the value in it. Uh, the one thing that actually wasn't in there were those 
a requirement for those uh, guards on the sides of trucks to stop cyclists from getting pulled under that have happened in some uh, horrific accidents. And I don't know, that might be a federal regulation under transportation rules, but... I think uh, vehicles are generally regulated at the provincial level for that stuff. Yeah. So not not 100% on that, but... Uh, yeah, generally, like, roads, yeah, generally, like, motor vehicle at stuff falls to the provinces. Well, speaking of motor vehicles, there's also a series of changes coming to the Strata Act. This is to help make it easier to put EV charging stations in. They are going to change the voting threshold from 75% to 50% for expenditures uh, needed to install EV stations for strata boards. This Usually, stratas have to have very high thresholds for spending on common property. This will just help carve out an exception for things that we need to see a lot more of, especially in older strata buildings. Uh, it will also help uh, require stratas to plan for future EV charging stations through electrical planning reports and uh, make sure that they approve owners' requests to install EV charging stations when all other reasonable criteria are met. So there's not just arbitrary denials because stratas are full of vindictive assholes. Just seems like a bunch of loopholes being closed there. Uh, what I found interesting is as well, there's another Miscellaneous Statutes Amendment Act that includes changes to the Strata Act. Um, buried in here is that they're going to close some of the loopholes that are allowing stratas to continue to use age-restricted bylaws. Uh, basically, it'll be retroactive to the previous change to the Strata Property Act in November, so that if you got into a strata and then they change it to a 55 plus building that you are grandfathered in to use the term uh, ironically in that situation i suppose that would be ironic the missed statute i mean good good change like there there were some problems that had popped up after the uh announcement of the uh previous changes to the strata act so good on them for moving to correct that it sounds like we're still seeing other problems. I saw someone post in our Slack that uh, there's an allegation one strata is proposing a like two or three thousand dollar move in and move out fee for any renters who may be considering going in to just act as like an unreasonable fee burden. And I don't know how those will survive the civil resolution tribunal if they go there or, you know, some stratas are going to find different ways to try to continue to ban rentals. So this fight isn't over with the province. And people are weirdly angry about this. Uh, the Miss Statutes Amendment Act also amends the Societies Act uh, to allow, to basically cover some post-secondary students who were left off of certain rights done in previous uh, issues. Nurse practitioners will be allowed to uh, decide what to do with organ donations, which hadn't been in there before. Under uh, the delightfully titled Human Tissue Gift Act? I'm I'm gifting you human tissue. What would you call it, Scott? <laughs> the Organ Donation Act, maybe? I don't know. It... There's uh, changes to the Child, Family, and Community Service Act to help uh, youth who've aged out of care and give more supports, including financial support uh, for those who are aging out of care. There's changes to the Vancouver Charter 
to, quote, modernize their ability to establish and regulate fees for the use of municipal property or for any service authorized to provide under the charter. Uh, I don't fully understand what this change is, but it seems like Vancouver was having trouble getting fees in certain situations, and now they will. There's another change to the Motor Vehicle Act here. I, I love that we're changing multiple laws through multiple acts at the same time. Uh, the legislative drafters are really working overtime. I hope they get to unionize. <laughs> uh, this Motor Vehicle Act amendment will ensure Road Safety BC continues to support modernizations of the act and uh, supports digitization. Community Living Authority Act is also being amended and the Employment Standards Act will be amended to recognize National Truth and Reconciliation Day. So, like most miscellaneous statutes amendment acts, not too much controversial in there, except perhaps the uh, strata stuff, which continues to be controversial. Finally, there was one more bill uh, introduced in the legislature and by the government, and this one didn't get a press release, which is always a little bit weird because they put a press release on the Miss Statutes Amendment Act. Uh, this other bill is Bill 18, introduced by Indigenous uh, Re Relations and Reconciliation Minister Murray Rankin titled the Haida Nation Recognition Act. This act abolishes the uh, Secretariat of the Haida Nation and absorbs it into the Council of the Haida Nation and then recognizes the rights of governance and self-determination of the Council of the Haida Nation over the Haida Nation, which all seems positive as far as I can understand from the Haida Nation's website, the Secretariat is just like the legal vessel that they had to have to operate, but they elect their members to the council. And so the council is the main body, but on paper, it's the Secretariat. So this change seems like it's positive for the Haida Nation, but I don't understand why the government's not, I don't know, championing this unless it's, they just view it as kind of like a private bill that just affects the Haida Nation, and so it's not something they feel the need to trumpet, like the Miscellaneous Statutes Amendment Act. I don't know. There's some. There's been some like pretty small ball stuff in the various Miscellaneous Statute Amendment Act that still got a uh, press release. It's weird that this one doesn't. Like the last thing that didn't get a press release, as far as I remember, is Bill Five, the Public Service Labor Relations Amendment Act. This is the one that is the sword hanging over the uh, legislative drafter lawyers attempts to unionize that says, hey, if things go awry, we can force this through and stop you from unionizing, uh, which obviously a ostensibly pro-labor government wouldn't want to talk up too much publicly. So I don't know, maybe if any of you listeners know anything more about the inner workings of the Haida Nation politics and the government, we could know why they're not championing that they are recognizing the rights of governance and self-determination of the Haida Nation, which seems like something this government would want to talk about. The other things they did want to talk about this week are that the minimum wage has gone up. Uh, it is now sixteen seventy-five an hour, or it will be sixteen seventy-five an hour as of June first. That's up a dollar ten or seven percent from last year, which is the consumer price index rate of inflation for the year. So they have pegged it to that, but they hadn't officially said that it would be. And so it was just a good confirmation 
that they're committed to that level of increase. Yeah, I mean, I, I think ideally this stuff would be just the sort of thing that's just written into the legislation. And I wouldn't do a big thing about it every year, but uh, I get the politics that uh, comes along with it. Uh, I liked the quick notes in there that to date, most jurisdictions in Canada have indicated they'll be increasing their minimum wage this year, except for Alberta and Nunavut. And I can see why Alberta's not doing it, because Daniel Smith is uh, not inclined to believe in such things. Don't know what's going on in Nunavut. Maybe they just haven't gotten around to making the announcement yet. And finally, for our small roundup, before we get into the main bit of BC politics to really get into, is this story from the Globe and Mail that came out at the end of last week, which is pretty much like within hours or minutes of John Horgan officially no longer being an MLA. Uh, congrats on your retirement. It came out that he has uh, already got something lined up for his post-retirement, which is to uh, be on the board of Elk Valley Resources, the uh, thermal coal spinoff of, I believe it's, it's not thermal coals. Oh, sorry. That's the very important distinction in there. Right. Metallurgical the coal. coal one. Yes. I get them confused. One of them's the really bad one and the other is the necessary one. It's still the announcement that drew a lot of uh, attention and unease, I think mostly because of how fast it happened. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of people who weren't happy with it, regardless of how fast. If he yeah. announced a year from now, there still would have been a bunch of people angry about it. I mean, yeah, it's a little fast, but like, I don't know, I don't begrudge him uh, a post-politics uh, bit of work. And like, sitting on a company board it's not like he's CEO or anything but yeah anyway he uh scorned off all criticism basically saying he's out of politics now just let him lead his life and he had to know it wasn't gonna go over well <laughs> and like maybe he just doesn't care and that's fine I think he doesn't care at this point <laughs> yeah he is out of politics he's not gonna be coming back to politics um so why does he care about it and anyway there you have it john horgan now on the uh coal company side of the aisle albeit the coal for steel rather than the coal for electricity and burning yeah a lot of the blowback i saw was not making that distinction which is an important one i think it's like we should be doing everything we can to phase out coal power, but uh, steel is absolutely going to be an essential product that needs to be produced for the foreseeable future, and we don't have alternatives to uh, metallurgical coal that are ready to go on that front. And yeah, we're going to need a lot of steel for uh, wind turbines and foundations for solar panels and all of that stuff. So we'll be using it for a while. We'll probably also need it for housing unless the mass timber portion of this which uh, even that homes for still people part goes. Which even then, you still use a lot of steel in the connections between the mass timber components. Fair. <laughs> we steel have a homes everywhere. for people. We have a homes for people plan. This is the new action plan David Eby has been teasing since his leadership campaign. Uh, he promised to, you know, give us an updated plan for how we would solve the housing crisis and we have that plan 
Um, and the biggest takeaway most people pointed out was uh, y- your math is very interesting when you talk about how many homes have been completed so far towards the government's original goal of about 110,000. Yeah, so if you were paying attention when they announced that goal, you would think that uh, about 110,000 homes that did not exist when they made that number would be constructed. Fast forward a few years, and that is not how the government is currently counting the new homes on that. They're basically throwing in any home they can attribute to anything other levels of government have done within the province, as well as homes that are supposedly being brought back on the market by the various taxes and other policy changes. So to put the numbers in context, their official goal was 114,000. They say that there are 85,800 completed and 22,800 under construction. Now, those actual built homes that were completed, there's 15,800 roughly from BC Housing, another 2,900 in student housing, and that's it for the province. The rest of those completed homes, 20,800 come from the speculation tax in Metro Vancouver being brought back onto the market. This was based on a study, I believe, uh, and so we don't actually know that for sure, but we have a good estimate. But There's a lot of inferences being made. It's not like a housing start where you can just tally up the numbers. And they're not new, right? Which is the other important thing, yes. Vacant. Uh, There's another 2,400 from CMHC, the federal government's rental finance program. And there's 600 from other things that includes building code changes to allow uh, secondary suites and the ban on strata rental restrictions. Uh, As we go forward, we're expecting... The province to build about another 16,000 or so homes from BC Housing. They're going to build another 5,000 student housing to get that up to 7,800. And then CMHC is going to put another 8,000 or so on the market. And another 2,000 are going to come from these building code changes and the strata restriction. And yeah, so they're playing fast and loose with the numbers, particularly what they're claiming credit for. It CMHC doesn't answer to the province. It, it's weird to include them in there, as well as claiming new homes that aren't actually new. So that half is uh, getting criticism. Rob Shaw has a commentary in business in Vancouver and others are flagging that. Uh, but what's new in here? Um The plan spends a lot of time talking about what they've done and has already been announced. Uh, It talks about the $4 billion invested in Budget 2023 and the uh, previous amounts that have been uh, mentioned before. It talks about the renter's rebate or the income-tested renter's rebate of $400 and some of the stuff that's been talked about with a province-wide central permitting source. and as well as some of the money for uh, addressing homelessness uh, and putting new temporary modular homes and opening up spaces for that is all, I think, re-announcements. Yeah, the digital we permitting do... stuff as well mm-hmm. was previously talked about. We do have a little bit of new stuff. Uh, so one of the uh, things they are announcing here is that uh, 
in the fall, they are going to introduce legislation that will allow up to four units on a traditional single-family detached lot, or maybe three to, if it's a small lot, as well as additional density in areas served by transit. Um, the timeline on this has gotten pushed back a little, which is unfortunate. I mean, at this point, it's going to be like a year between when the Housing Supply Act was introduced and when they were actually going to be bringing forward legislative zoning changes, which is unfortunate. It also says to many areas of the province. Yeah. So they're not just doing a blanket. I There's a lot of vague words. There's also a lot of we'll work with municipalities, which presumes municipalities are good faith partners in this, which they are not always. So We've already seen Richmond Mayor Malcolm Brody slamming this, uh, noting that they don't want this in their city mm -hmm. you know so yeah i would have liked non-housing crisis city richmond mm -hmm. so yeah a little more stick in this would have been nice to see but uh i think they're still trying to play nice for now they also do compare what they're talking about here to the moves that have been made in new zealand and parts of california and other jurisdictions of upzoning and this discussion of upzoning basically everything um, you know, it's drawing criticism fast. I talk, there's Malcolm Brody in Richmond, like I talked about, even, uh, Kevin Falcon is hinting at bits of Although, NIMBY type concern as well in some of the language he's adopted. Yeah. He's, he's speaking out both sides of his mouth. These it's days. A, yeah. I think Kevin Falcon is definitely opposed to the NDP doing it, whether or not he's opposed to it being done in general is... It a little less clear, but not a great look from him regardless. The other bill they're planning to do around zoning will be to make secondary suites allowed in every community across this province. So we'll get a bill to do that. So we do it. I mean, mostly like central municipalities and a bunch of the urban areas have it, but uh, a lot of the suburban areas still uh, prohibit it. So that would be good to see. Uh, they're also bringing in a forgivable loan uh, for homeowners uh, that will forgive up to 50% of the cost of renovations up to a maximum of $40,000 uh, to add secondary suites. And there's some additional requirements around uh, the rents that can be charged and whatnot on them. Yeah, that's a really interesting program, I think. Um they're expecting it to be open to about 3,000 homeowners for the first three years to give you a sense of how many suites they're hoping to open up with that. Like one of the problems, one of the challenges they identify in this report is even with all the money that they could have available, their workforce is limited. Like there's only so much the that capacity to build out. Like this is a very pro building. It talks about building a lot and building supply, but it also recognizes, you know, the labor force is limited. We need to also train and bring in more workers to build these homes. So that's also recognized in here. And something that like this uh, homeowner loan does help is looking at those smaller scale renovations that can open up some units. Now, secondary suites are not ideal home. You know, we can't have every new unit be a basement suite that doesn't make a better society. I don't think in most people's eyes. 
No, it doesn't, but uh, it's still a useful thing to help on the margin. Still a lot of, yeah, it's, it's a good size subsidy, too, for what the province is putting out there at uh, $40,000 per unit. Yeah, and this is a loan that's being given to homeowners that will increase the value of their home, generate them revenue. Um, like if you're a homeowner with a basement or with some space or, you know, your land gets up zone so you can put a laneway house on, this makes it pretty attractive. So, yeah. So as long as you're wanting to be a landlord, it depended on what the, the rent limitations are on that. Um, which those numbers haven't been announced. So there is the potential that it won't pencil as well, depending on where you are, but uh, it could potentially be attractive too, uh, particularly with the forgiveness aspect on it. Although that's once again, only 50% of the cost of that. Um, something else I noticed just coincidentally, the um, they're reannouncing their budget pledge to help build housing around uh, transit and whatnot, where they're putting $394 million into that to build 10,000 units, which once again works out roughly to a subsidy of uh, just shy of $40,000 per unit on that, which is fairly significant. And it's not entirely clear how that money's going to actually be used on that. It's not like the private sector is against building units near transit. They would probably build a whole lot more if the uh, municipalities would let them. And in theory, the municipalities' infrastructure costs associated with that are paid for by the fees the developers pay in there. So what exactly that $40,000, I guess 39400 per unit is going to isn't super clear yeah like some could just go into translink's investment funds as translink's already starting to talk a lot about uh the powers it has to start building so yeah maybe but uh, you know that's close to half a billion yeah round up that's not all that far off from half a billion dollars there like that's sizable money yeah, that's where this plan talks about the $4 billion that's been announced, and there's a commitment to $12 billion over the next 10 years. So, positive stuff. Um, there's also a mention to bring in a flipping tax in here to discourage short-term speculation. This is, I guess this would be on top of the one the federal government has talked about. I don't know if they actually ended up bringing it in yet, but this would be the idea that if you buy a home, you have to hold on to it for probably a year or two before you sell it or else you face uh, a surcharge on your property transfer tax. Which could also end up hitting a lot of people who like for circumstances they weren't planning on have to sell a house earlier than they were planning on. So I could see that potentially having some challenges with it too and impacting people unfairly. Yeah, I think the best designed one of these usually have a few clear caveats for the most obvious situations like a death or loss of job or something like that but there's always going to be edge cases um, and so what the flexibility of that will matter uh, th this doesn't you know create new homes or 
really solve the affordability crisis, but it it's targeted at trying to reduce the um, profiteering off housing and using housing as an investment vehicle and speculative purchase, which, you know, many point to, and I'm a bit critical of how it gets used that way much of the time. And so it's positive. It doesn't build us homes though. Yeah. As we're done, like all of that stuff is generally downstream of the, uh, scarcity in the market like that is what the people who are doing the speculating are speculating on a few of the other things in here is continuing to improve the efficiency of the residential tenancy branch and making sure uh, there are better protections for renters in there is focused as a part of this um, a little bit more protections for those who might be um rent evicted or demo evicted during redevelopments making sure the speculation of vacancy tax is used to build homes going after how money laundering always has to make an appearance in here uh and then on the uh homelessness side uh they talk a bit about the spaces they are opening and trying to get open 3900 additional supportive housing units 240 uh, purpose-built complex care housing units at 12 places across the province. This is part of the uh, mental health and addiction plan announced recently. Uh, as well, there's going to be new acronyms. There's going to be the HEART teams. These are the Homeless Encampment Action Response Teams. Uh, and then there's going to be the HEARTH teams, the Homeless Encampment Action Response for Temporary Housing. So the HEART teams will uh, be multidisciplinary groups that go to stop encampments from becoming entrenched, as we just saw kind of collapse in Vancouver with the uh, police and city crackdown there. They're going to model this on Greater Victoria and Seattle projects. Uh, and then the hearth part of it will be places for people to go so they don't get into encampments. And then there will be an encampment strategy coordination to work between various agencies to uh, prevent them from happening before they get entrenched. So the province is at least alive to the issues that are in this province and whether those pan out, you know, it's hard to say. These are deep challenges facing many cities across the continent. Um, but it's, I don't know. I, I, I'm hopeful a little bit, but also not. Yeah, I would, I mean, looking at the thing as a whole, I would been happier if the ratio of stuff that was new compared to previously announced was a lot higher as well as if they were moving faster on say the zoning changes and all of that like we've known what needed to be done for a long time eb was talking about this stuff last summer when he was starting his campaign uh for the leadership at what and whatnot like taking over a year to bring that in seems excessive on that and yeah the funny business with the numbers up front doesn't exactly reassure me though like overall the package seems decent if not ambitious enough yeah and i didn't even mention um besides our discussion of the numbers like there's a discussion of delivering 4,000 on-campus rooms for post-secondary students and 
that's one of those places the province can very easily build housing because especially at something like UBC, there is no municipality to get in the way. UBC is a company town uh, and the province has actually done a lot over its course to get on-campus housing built and that makes a big difference for uh, university students. I know like I was lucky enough to get into housing in undergrad, but it's it can get expensive if you don't get that lucky spot in res. Um, and especially as our universities keep growing, we need to make sure we have houses for people while they're there as students. We need to have houses for faculty and support staff. Uh, and then once they graduate, those students need somewhere else to live too, once they go into the workforce. But on-campus housing... If you're moving students out of Kitsilano into campus, that helps too, right? Yeah. Clears out rentals. Frees that up. Elsewhere. Um, so yeah, a lot of good steps there. It would be nice if the uh, addition to the provinces uh, moves to speed up their own permitting. They were doing more to speed up the uh, city stuff too. But yeah, there's the province has put a fair bit of money into this, but you know it hasn't built enough units yet. And there's just a huge ton of private sector capital out there that would could be deployed on this if the barriers to actually deploying it were eased up quite a bit. And some of the steps they're taking are good there, but like you, you can get some pretty high multipliers uh, going if you naturally get the process issues solved and. They're making moves in that direction, but it doesn't sound like it's going to be enough quickly enough to really make a difference. And not only that, like the um, the three three to four units on a lot is going to be quite useful for a lot of places, but that doesn't really get you much further than City of Vancouver already has. And really, for like places like Vancouver and Victoria, the the province should be doing more than just three units on a lot they they should be looking at you know low to mid-rise apartments as the default zoning yeah it's one of those tough things where it's like in many ways this plan is among the more ambitious housing plans we've seen at least in canada and i don't know north uh american housing politics enough to say how it would compare there but like this is an ambitious plan on the broad scale, but then you look at the scale of the crisis and it's not necessarily enough in the same way that like Clean BC is in many ways a very ambitious climate plan, but also the climate crisis is very big and Clean BC might not be sufficient. And it's disheartening on both fronts to be like, there's a lot of good stuff in here, but I also don't know if it's enough. Like the city of Vancouver is doing and has been moving this way through the previous council on this council on housing to look at uh, increasing density through the Vancouver plan and through some of the other projects. And it's a slow process, but there is some reason for optimism there, I think. Talking about four plexes and six plexes per lot. But once you get out of the city of Vancouver, like Burnaby is just having the discussion of like, would, would laneway houses be okay here? And that's right next door. And so if, it takes the province going, no, Burnaby, uh, New West, Coquitlam, Richmond, you're all, and North Vans, you're all allowing three, four units per lot. 
that will help. But the other half of that is, uh, I think we've seen, and the report cites an example in Portland where, you know, it's it's a couple hundred units a year. It's not a massive overnight change, uh, but it's one that slowly builds up. Because, you know, as I look at my own single family home lot, if I was given the power, I'm not redeveloping it into three units tomorrow. I might do it in 15 years or 20 years. <laughs> but yeah, which is all the more reason to get started right now, because, uh, yeah, these things take time. It's a slow process to uh, build that out because. Yeah, most property owners don't in any given year don't redevelop, even if there weren't the uh, regulatory and process barriers in the way of that. So yeah, the the sooner the better. And it's disappointing that we're not even going to see legislation till the fall on doing that. And yeah, and there's also other stuff that could be done to uh, make kind of those small unit. Uh, or small lot redevelopments more effective that isn't in here, whether that's putting limits on what cities can impose for parking requirements, which are often the thing that kills like single lot redevelopments, even if the zoning uh, allows it just because parking's expensive to build, particularly you have to dig down and it either takes up way too much of the surface or you're spending a lot of money to excavate out underground parking as well as there's, uh, you know, I think one of the net's frontiers of the housing ad, the pro building housing advocacy is the uh, point of access block uh, building code changes, which I don't think is even on the province's radar yet, um, which would make a potentially make a big difference, but is also going to require a bunch more work and. Yeah, there, this is the start, not the end of the, the housing policy changes that are really needed. And that's where I think it's really interesting to s keep an eye on how the opposition parties, both the Liberals and the Greens, or eventually BC United, respond so to this. Like, we've only Wednesday. seen... That's officially... Ah, it is that soon. Yeah. <laughs> you know, how they position themselves on this will be interesting, right? Uh, I know, like I mentioned, some of Kevin Falcon's early questions are simultaneously like, we need more supply, we need more houses, what are you doing to get more houses? Also, don't like overly threaten neighborhood character. I mean, to be fair, that worked for Ken Sim. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. Are we optimistic about how much they're building in Vancouver, though? Uh, no. It hasn't been quite as bad as I thought he would, but yeah, there's... Uh... There's definitely room for improvement. Um, yeah, kind of keeping an eye on the broader trends are interesting. Like one thing I noticed here, just reading this, is just how hard it would be to imagine this coming out of anyone from the NDP five, ten years ago. You know, it, it's night and day compared to where they were on this, and you know that. Now there's reports talking about, you know, the impact of setbacks on this stuff, um, which for those who aren't like entirely in the weeds, those are like the rules on like how far away from the property line buildings have to be. And like that would not not have even been on the radar, let alone making its way into the reports like this uh, a few years ago. So like 
the ground really has changed a lot on the housing discussion. Um, but yeah, like you're saying, not all the parties have uh, followed along as well as they could, or some of them are still hedging. Um, I well, missed could what the Greens have... said in response yeah, to that. Yeah, I haven't seen the Green response yet. Um, I'm not going to go dig it up right now. I'm going to get just let people yell at me on Twitter where I'm not active or in the Slack with the response there. But like the challenge here mid to longer term as well is going to be the electoral politics on this because you know the big effect this has is on suburbs like mine is like the belt we don't really have a metro van belt line but like the city of vancouver the average voter probably isn't going to care as much because things are changing and like you said already in place for this level of reform but there could be a nimby backlash to this among homeowners and that's another reason for them to move faster and establish this as uh and why we won't see a fall election because if you want to do this you don't have an election right after you tell people uh that all their neighbors are going to put up mini high rises which is not true but will be where people start to think this is going um but that's also going to be like but it's also like a big incentive for bc united to try and win back those writings that they need uh, to form government. So uh, housing politics is not done and could get very ugly. No, but it's a lot easier to do this stuff at kind of the provincial or I guess New Zealand case, the national level. Because like the more you zoom out, the the less concentrated the, the harms are, and like the, the more obvious the benefits are to like the province as a whole. It, it just... This sort of stuff just works better at higher levels of government to push forward policies. And yeah, there will be some people who complain, but like there's a lot of stuff that influences how people vote provincially. Um, and it's unlikely that zoning policy is going to be the thing that people vote on provincially as, as much as I would sometimes wish it was. Anyway, if I don't think this is going to be the reason David Evie is going to lose an election. Hopefully not. Uh, or if it is, it's because somehow he is found to be not ambitious enough on the housing front, and he should have committed to build personally uh, 800,000 homes with his bare hands. Yeah, well, I mean, if the uh, housing crisis continues to worsen and we see prices go up... Can more and more yeah that that could potentially hurt them but uh like you said that would be a case of them not being ambitious enough here jumping into quick takes on the foreign interference story we have a couple follow-ups first globe and mail and a few others have details on the mandate given to david johnston in his ability to inquire as to the state of it. As we mentioned in previous podcasts, he is the special rapporteur on this issue. And to the government's credit, they have basically given him carte blanche to investigate this, to ask anyone anything, to look at documents he needs to see, including confidential and secret ones. Um, he's got the powers, possibly more powers than some public inquiries may even have to 
really try to figure out what's going on. And that's at least promising on one hand. Yeah. Uh, well, it's not just uh, confidential and secret. They review any classified or unclassified record. So uh, there's three levels of classification. Uh, you know, confidential, cla- uh, secret, and top secrets. I mean, there's some stuff above that one too. But like inject. It also means top secret from how I read this. Uh, so yeah, very wide ranging in terms of uh, the mandate, which is good. It's probably the first like good decision the PMO has made in relation to any of this stuff so far. The thing is, because they made a bunch of poor choices, including how they went about appointing the uh, special rapporteur, it really does seem like his range of politically acceptable outcomes is fairly limited. So I good that there's going to be a thorough look at this, but I don't think these terms of reference are and powers are going to be the sort of thing that is going to reassure anyone if his recommendation is not to proceed to a public inquiry or a process similar to that. Uh, we also learned that he's getting paid, what was it, like fourteen to $1,600 a day. That's oh, not bad work if you can get it. Right. Uh, speaking of money, uh, uh, the other follow-up is on Friday, MP Handong, the one named in a global news piece and former liberal now, has formally served global news with a libel notice demanding retraction and an apology Um uh, which is a pretty bold step, you know, that is more than just threatening it, more than just saying, denying it. It doesn't prove anything. Anyone can serve anyone with a libel notice and it can or cannot go as far as it does. Um, but he's taking this seriously. So um, depending how far this goes in court, we may get a little bit more information on how Global came to write the story they did about him. Yeah, it's uh, going to be interesting to see, uh, particularly whatever gets turned up in Discovery, if that uh, ends up going that far. Moving over to the Department of National Defense, CTV News flagged this report that we had to spend a little bit of time finding because it was buried on the uh, government's website. But the Evaluation of Acquisition Project Management bracket agile acquisition innovation and gba plus uh report has been released <laughs> released is a a loose word for it it was posted on the reports and publications page under there under audits and evaluation reports this is a report on why doesn't procurement work very well kind of uh it's looking largely at agility and are we able to have an agile procurement system that properly incorporates GBA plus gender-based analysis plus that's a commitment of this uh, Trudeau government and has been from day one that all government departments should uh, use that lens to look at things. Um, What this pretty much finds is that no, we're obviously not doing great at procurement. The big reason CTV news flags is that 30% of the procurement positions are vacant. That's a problem. is a lot. Yes, particularly when you're handling some very complex procurement uh, projects. Yeah, that's 30% of 4,200 positions. Um, 
beyond that, they're just this isn't a damning report. Like it says they don't they're not flexible or agile. They don't have they don't know what agile is. Like there's actually yeah, they no don't even definition have a definition in there. Uh they take a one size fits all approach. Um and they don't even know what GBA plus means. Which yeah. Um it's got a number of recommendations and ways to move forward for the department, but you know, hiring uh what is that like 1200 more people is going to be a a serious challenge beyond just like making sure people are the people you have and do hire are trained at how to buy things quickly yeah like they flayed that one of the problems is that uh the public service is naturally risk reverse and then any attempt or anytime there's public scrutiny of stuff it, they tend to be more risk averse which actually like adds more and slows it down on this there's a lot of things to fits on here uh and they do also flag that most of our allies uh have better agile procurement frameworks to understand how to move quickly and buy things efficiently uh and so at very least we could waste less money by just learning from literally anyone else. So if you wanted to know why procurement doesn't work in Canada, we have our answer. It's that uh, we don't have any staff and the staff we have don't know what they're doing. There's That is some of the things that's wrong. There's also a whole bunch of other challenges too on that. Like the fact that we basically had to rebuild the Irving shipyards to build the ships we're building in Canada rather than buying them from an allied shipyard that's the sort of thing that also contributes to this sort of challenge and things going over budget that wasn't flagged here there's a lot of complexity a lot of areas where there's room for improvement the one thing that this report and we found it literally before it recorded pretty much we haven't done a thorough deep dive on it but uh one thing that kind of stood out to me is they're played in the uh, GBA analysis as something they need to consider because it's government uh, policy on this and the department's not being all that effective at following the government policy. But one thing I didn't really see them analyze here is kind of the tension between adding additional analysis steps and moving to a more agile system. Like if you're Agility and increasing bureaucratic steps are often at uh, odds with each other. That isn't really something that's flayed or discussed much because, hey, it's government policy and we're just evaluating how good we're doing with the government policy on that. Yeah, that irony is highlighted ironically in their promising practices table where they uh, list a number of things that are looking like they're heading in the right direction. And the last one there is adding the G to priciage, which is P-R-I-C-I-E-G. And that acronym among the many acronyms in here stands for personnel, research and development, infrastructure concepts and doctrine, information technology, equipment support and sustainability, and gender-based analysis plus. Basically, those are all the different things they need to be examining when doing a defense service program. 
that's a hell of a mouthful when every letter in the acronym stands for multiple words. I think at this, this point, that's an initialism that almost takes more time to say than the, f- the full string of words on there. It's it's a mess. Yeah. Yeah. I th- like I, Welcome to military I think there is a value to, yeah, I think there is a value to gender-based analysis plus in, as a whole of government approach, but that tension is real and needs to be recognized and dealt with. I think the limit is this report isn't a full, you know, holistic look at procurement. It's a look at yeah, I mean, a whole. Of, are they agile or yeah, and are they including GBA plus? Yeah, I mean, this is an internal report they got posted to the their website. This is not like a full stack review from top to bottom, which. I mean, honestly, at this point, we'd probably need like a royal commission to really flesh out every single challenge there is with that. Um, But yeah, it's just one of the many factors on there, which is uh, something that absolutely should be addressed more fully because there is a lot of stuff that that is either going through the procurement system... uh, right now or will be in the coming decade or so or or should be in the coming decade or so and getting this to work better would be very good um finally just a quick story to end on it kind of follows up our news from the budget that we're throwing a billion dollars to make a moon buggy a truck to drive around the moon uh there could be a Canadian driving that as we're going to send a Canadian to, well, orbit the moon. I guess he might not land. Yeah, the Artemis 2 mission doesn't have them landing. But hey, it's the furthest a Canadian will have ever gone, so that's cool. This is astronaut uh, Jeremy Hansen. Yeah, the first Canadian to orbit the moon. He's 47. Uh, he'll be joining Christina Koch, Victor Glover, and Reed Weissman on the Artemis 2 mission when that launches in 2025 2024 oh no sorry when that yeah when that launches in 2024 with our goal of landing someone on the moon in 2025 our goal being nasa's goal but we're part of the team just cool i really have like in-depth political analysis just beyond cool we're sending canadians on this and are part of the program 100 percent we love we love space here on Politicoast. And that has been Politicoast. Find links to everything we talked about at politicoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Politicoast is a production of Legend Boot Media and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening.